So I'm going to be honest and admit to you all that I struggle with punctuality. Uh, those of you that spend enough time with me, you know that this is true. I sometimes don't show up on time. This is something I've struggled with a good portion of my life. And uh, funny to mention, being back in D.C., uh, when we lived there, it sort of fed that in me. Because in D.C., you can get away with being late. Uh, if you've ever been there, you know the traffic is insane and the metro doesn't always run on time. And so everybody has an excuse. No one really ever shows up on time. And so I was perfectly comfortable in my lateness when I lived in D.C. But when we moved back to the Midwest, it was weird because one of the things that we first noticed is, man, people actually show up on time here. There's no excuse because there's no traffic. And some of you all show up early. Not all of you. Some of you are as bad as me. But some of you show up early. Like, I remember one of the first times Mindy and I had people come to our house, and they were there five minutes early. And we're like, what, what is this? Five minutes early? We're not even ready. I don't know, is it the military culture, maybe? Um, but uh, I, I recently heard someone talking about how different cultures uh, sort of set different expectations on the amount of time you can be late before it's considered rude. So in northern European countries and cultures that sort of descended from them, such as uh, us in the United States, roughly 10 to 15 minutes is all you're going to get before it's considered rude. You go down to Latin America, and they give you like an hour before they consider it rude. That sounds like a great place for me. The island of Yop off the, in, in, the, uh, in the Pacific Ocean, two hours you can show up two hours late, and that's just sort of hitting the, the line of rudeness. I'm like, yeah. So it, it's fun. Maybe we can consider that you know, different cultures have different expectations or, or even see time differently. But really, my point is something else. I, I draw our attention to this idea of time and punctuality because so much of our life, especially in our culture is dictated by how we view our time. Like the reason we count mere minutes before we consider somebody rude is be, it just shows how much control we want to exercise over our lives. Like for someone to show up 15 minutes late to a meeting means that they're imposing, they're, they're breaking into your schedule and the attempt that you are making to control your life and order your day. They're imposing their rudeness, their lateness on your attempt to accomplish the goals that you have. And so in our well-ordered world, when our schedules are broken, when, when we're kept waiting, we don't like it because we feel the loss of control. We feel the loss of that sense of, I don't get to do what I plan to do. I don't get to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. And when it comes to our expectations of God, we, we want him on our timetable as well. Is that not true? Answer my prayers in my timing. Give me the things that I want when I say I want them. Don't make me wait. Don't make me suffer. Don't leave me to wrestle with your timing. Don't interrupt or disrupt my plans. God, if anything, make my planning Make my accomplishments, make my activity and my energy, my time run more efficiently and more smoothly. What the Gospel of Mark shows us over and over again is Jesus sees time much differently than we do. 
He moves to the rhythm of his agenda, not ours. And that can unsettle us. I don't want us to gloss over this passage this morning. Jesus let a little girl die, and he didn't seem to be in a hurry to get to her. Just sit with that for a second. Just consider what we just read. A man comes saying, Jesus, my little girl is dying, and Jesus isn't in a rush. If that doesn't unsettle you some, you're missing the punch, the weight of the punch this passage is throwing at you. You see, Jesus doesn't work on our timetable. He he isn't beholden to our agenda. He doesn't always respond how we want him to or when we want him to. He, He doesn't serve our cares and our pains and our desires. It's merely as a way of baptizing our agenda. But this is not to say that Jesus is indifferent. This is not to say that Jesus doesn't care about our pains and our suffering and the very details of our life. No, he cares very deeply. But he's about something other than our agenda. He's after something much deeper than just us accomplishing our goals. You see, he wants us to view our pain, our suffering, our very lives through a different lens. He wants us to see time. He wants us to see how we live our lives and and what we give ourselves to very differently. You see, he has an agenda, an agenda of grace, and that agenda challenges us and unsettles us. And that's what I want to look at this morning. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Uh, Usually, I try to sort of present you know, one or two or three points and kind of walk through those points in a text. I have wrestled with this text for two weeks, and I felt like any attempt to sort of give you the three-point sermon would rob this text, rob this passage of sort of the beautiful flow and nuance, and really allow us just to walk through the tension of this passage and let it just hang there for a while. And so rather than kind of preaching a three-point sermon, I'm just going to walk through this text And as we go along, just make some observations and some points and kind of pull some things out that I think the Lord has for us this morning. So what that means is, is I'm not entirely sure how I'm going to end this sermon. (laughs) And and that is very different. You know, if you're thinking, oh boy, what's going to go on? Hey, I'm more terrified than you are because that's not how I usually preach. (laughs) I'm relinquishing some control here. And I'm not not trying to be, you know, like spooky, supernatural. You know, the Holy Spirit's going to just do something crazy here. Rather, I just, I want to let the Lord guide us through this passage. I'm not going to say I'm preaching like this all the time, but but I just want to walk through and let's make some observations and let's allow the Spirit just to move in the moment here with us and hang some things on us, but also minister to us grace and hope and truth. So, if you have a Bible or your Bible app, uh, the verses will also be on the screen uh, if you need that as well. And let's, let's walk through this passage together. And so I want to start by reading the first three verses. This is verses 21 through 24. And this kind of sets the stage for us of what's going on. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. 
Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And so a man by the name of Jairus comes to Jesus. And what the text tells us is Jairus is one of the rulers of the synagogue or maybe the ruler of the synagogue. So he was on the leadership team of the synagogue in this city. Now, this made Jairus a very, very important person. He had a lot of power, a lot of influence, a lot of status. Jairus is not just some average dude in town. He's a somebody. And so when he comes to Jesus asking that he would heal his daughter, this is an important moment for Jesus because can you just imagine if, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're following Jesus. Here's our moment, guys. A leader, a ruler of the synagogue. Up to this point, the leaders have been hassling us, but here's a ruler, a leader, an important guy in town who's come to Jesus asking that Jesus would heal his daughter. If we get in the good graces with this guy, oh, we've made it. We're, we're, we're connected. We got someone advocating for us. And so let's, let's do this, Jesus. Let's go heal her daughter so that we can be in. And so Jesus, I don't know if, if Jesus heard the disciples or if the disciples really had that conversation, but I could imagine that would go on in their hearts because anytime we're around people who are important, that goes on in our hearts, right? And so Jesus follows and he heads towards this, the home of Jairus to heal his daughter, and also, this is important, an important thing to note as well. Jairus comes with an incredible amount of faith. He comes with humility. Like, this is the way you want to approach Jesus. This is a beautiful picture of faith and humility. Like, he's on his knees before the Lord saying, Lord, come touch my daughter and heal her. And as they are going, the text says, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So here's what we have going on. Jesus is going to Jairus' house and there's a huge crowd following him. And it says they're thronging about him. This is what this means. The crowd is pressing in on him. You ever walked in a crowd where the people are just like pressing in on you and you can smell their breath and their body odor and feel the weight and you feel like, man, if I, if I don't keep my balance, I'm going to fall over and get trampled? Like this is the kind of crowd Jesus was trying to make his way through. There are so many people that, that wanted to be around Jesus and witness what he was doing. And the text highlights a particular person in this crowd. It, it, it singles out this woman. We don't know her name. We don't know anything else about her other than it says she suffered from a medical condition, an issue of blood. She, she was consistently bleeding. For 12 years, she had this condition. And here's what else it says, that she had tried everything. She had gone to every doctor she could find. She had spent her life savings trying to get healed. And it says the doctors not only couldn't help her, but made it worse. You can just imagine what this woman must have gone through. Just imagine for a moment that you have this medical condition and you have spent your very life savings, every last penny that you've had, and not only could the doctors not give you answers and not give you hope and not cure you, you're worse off for going to see them. Like you spent your money to make your life miserable, not better. Can you imagine the loss of hope? The, the pain that this woman was feeling. But, but it goes deeper than that. 
Because as a woman who had the issue of blood, she would have been ceremonially unclean, meaning she could have no human contact. She, she should not even be in this crowd, especially a crowd where everybody's touching one another and pressing in on each other, for, because for her to touch someone else would to make, be to make them unclean as well. And so she lived not only with the pain of her physical ailment and the disappointment of doctors who made her condition worse, she was a social outcast. She, she was cast out from society. She was an untouchable. She was one of these, stay away because you're going to stain me and make me unclean. And the text highlights, this is the woman who is in this crowd. And what it says is that she wanted to touch Jesus. She wanted to make it to Jesus. I wonder if any of you can relate to this. I wonder if any of you have been in this place where what, whatever the circumstance, whatever the brokenness, whatever the, the physical ailment, the emotional or mental brokenness or circumstances, or, or maybe it's been sin, I don't know, but whatever it's been, you have tried everything to make it better and it's only gotten worse. And because of whatever it is, you have felt cast out. You have felt ostracized. You have felt like if you get near anybody, you're going to make them unclean. And maybe people have treated you this way. Stay away. Your, your, your ailment is too big for me. Your mess is too messy for me. You're too sinful for me. Keep back. Stay away. Stay out. Maybe you felt this from the church. Maybe you felt this from religious people. I wonder if any of you can relate and have felt this pain. I'm imagining some of you can. Because I know in a room this size, there are going to be stories like this. She wanted to make it to Jesus because she believed that if he just touched his garment, this is what it says. She had heard the reports about Jesus. She heard this guy heals people. This guy has healed lepers and he's cast out demons. And she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, even if I touch his garment, I will be made well. So, so here, here's something that we need to understand about her belief. She's partly right here. She has faith. Like, she wants to touch Jesus. She believes Jesus can heal her. But there's also some superstition going on. She thinks, man, it's just this physical contact. If I just make the physical contact, so whether it's his garment or maybe his body, it was common in folk religion at the time to believe that sort of power was held in objects. So if there was a holy man or a prophet, you know, his garments carried power, and so I just want to touch his garments and be healed, or maybe just touch his body and be healed. And she's risking a lot here. She's risking a lot. As I said, for her to be in this crowd was against the law. So for her to be caught would be a massive problem. And she also knows that if I touch Jesus, even if I touch his garment, I am making him ritualistically unclean. I am making Jesus unclean if I touch him. And so this is a big risk for her. So she has some issues with her theology. At the same time, she has faith. And she is taking a big risk, breaking the law to go touch Jesus. 
And in verses 29 through 32, we read this. After she touches his garment, and immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? Everybody's touching you, Jesus. And he looked around to see who had done it. See, this woman, she wanted to come up, kind of ninja-like, touch Jesus and get out. She didn't want to be identified because she knew, if I'm identified, I'm in trouble. And so she wanted to be very sneaky. She wanted to just sort of get her healing and, and stay hidden and move away. But Jesus had different, a different agenda. Jesus had other plans. He wasn't okay with this woman just hiding in the dark. He wasn't okay with this woman being cast out. He wasn't okay with this woman being ostracized from her community. He wasn't okay with this woman suffering. And so he looks for her. He looks for her. Now, I can imagine at first she's thinking, I'm in trouble. But I wonder if it was the look on his face or the tone in his voice that caused her to out herself. Because eventually, she goes back to Jesus. She falls down in his feet. She tells him everything. Here's my story. I tried everything. I tried every doctor. I tried every method. Spent every last penny. And I'm worse off. And I just thought if I touched you, if I got near to you, I'd be healed. And I wonder what she expected, if she expected judgment or, hey, do you know what you just did to me? Did you know you probably shouldn't have touched me? Maybe we could have just talked about it first. But what does she get from him? She gets compassion. She gets an incredible amount of compassion. This is what he says to her. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Daughter. Do you know what it means to be a daughter? It means you belong to the family. It means you're in. It doesn't mean you're cast out. It doesn't mean you're one of those untouchable, unclean people over there living by themselves in the corner in the dark. It means, no, you're part of the family. You belong. Jesus is drawing her near. Now, don't miss this. Her shame wanted to bury her. You know, religion and, and, and just false sense of morality and hypocrisy and, and people that didn't have compassion wanted to just push her away. And Jesus wanted to draw her near. Jesus wanted to cut through her shame. Jesus wanted to cut through all of those things that were keeping her separated from God and his people, and he brought her near. And the beauty of this passage is that Jesus takes her uncleanness on himself. Yes, she made him unclean, but he will, willingly takes that on himself. Jesus willingly takes her shame, willingly takes whatever sickness and suffering and disease that she carried on himself. This is the good news of the gospel for us, church, that Jesus takes our shame, our uncleanness on himself so that we can be clean. He pulls us out of the shadows of our shame. He pulls us out of the shadows of the, the ways that we want to hide. And he brings us into the light 
so that we can live in the goodness of being a son and being a daughter. Like in the midst of your shame, in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of all of the ways that people might want to cast you out, Jesus sees you and he has compassion for you. Oh, he has a radical compassion for you. Now here's where this text gets interesting because this is a beautiful moment, right? This is a beautiful moment. I mean, if, even if you sort of think about it in kind of sort of the cultural uh, moment that we're in right now, Jesus makes one of the most powerful men in the city wait for an unnamed woman. Jesus makes the privileged and the powerful dude, who, by the way, exercised great faith, wait for an unnamed woman who was a social outcast. It's beautiful, but it also throws us. Because what do we read in the next verse? After this beautiful moment of compassion and healing, here's what comes crashing in. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Like, look, Jesus delayed. Jesus stopped. Jesus could have kept on going. He could have said, oh, I healed somebody. Let's keep going. No, he stops, he looks for the woman, he calls her out, he has this beautiful moment where he brings her in and includes her and says, you're seen. But as a result, this young girl dies. As a result of Jesus' timetable, this young girl dies. What is going on? And again, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, everything that, that we read about him in this text leads us to believe that this was a guy of faith. Like, he was a good man. Like, he was, it doesn't say anything about the way that he ruled or the way he led, but we're led to assume that he was a good dude. And, and he exercised faith in Jesus. He did all of the things that we're supposed to do. And yet his daughter died. Oh, this challenges us, church. This pokes at our expectations. This gets underneath the fact that you and I so often expect Jesus to answer our prayers in the way that we, that we want him to answer. And if we do everything that we think we should be doing. Ever wrestled with that? Ever felt the weight of that? Lord, I think my faith is good. I trust you. I believe you. I'm trying to walk in humility, in righteousness here. And yet you leave me waiting. You don't answer my prayer when, when, when I want you to or, or when I think you to. What, what else do you want from me? I wonder in the moment how Jairus felt. Did, 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 he, did he feel the sense of, you healed this woman, why'd you let my daughter die? Did, did, did Jesus' compassion upset him at all? I wonder for, for you, do, do you ever get frustrated at Compassion. Did you ever feel the weight of, look at all the compassion, look at, look at, look at how people, other people who, who, for whatever reason, have jacked up their life or are in a situation that, that is messy, and yet I'm trying to do all the right things, and yet they're getting all the attention, they're getting all the grace, they're getting all the love, and here I am all this time, and what, what good is it for me? Again, 
I don't know if this is what's going through Jairus' mind, but I know as human beings, this is what goes through our minds. And I know that in this text, this is, ra- this is a tension in this text. And in the midst of that, Jesus says to Jairus, don't fear. Believe. Only believe. Now again, we can read this a couple ways. We can go this route. Don't doubt Jesus. Don't you dare question Jesus. And sort of go back into that sort of like, I have to believe perfectly if I want Jesus to act in the way that I want him to act. And so we jump right back into performing. We think that this comes down to performance for us. And yet Jesus wants to enter in and disrupt that performance loop. He wants to disrupt that, that, that religious impulse that you and I have to think that if we do the right thing, good input outs good input. And so I want to ask the question, why trust Jesus? Like, like we, we can go the heavy-handed route and say, don't doubt, but, it, but is that how the text is moving us? Is, is the text moving us into sort of this just like, don't doubt Jesus? I don't think so. Oh, it's unsettling us. It's challenging us. But on the other side of that, it, it is not just this white-knuckle grip performing faith, but a picture of Jesus that leads us to trust him and leads us to see him with some new eyes. So after reassuring Jairus, Jesus heads to the house and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And so Jesus goes to the house. And as Jesus does so often, he challenges perception. Oh, you think she's dead? No, she's sleeping. Now, does this, does this mean that she literally is sleeping? No. Like, people understood and knew when someone had died. Like, she really had died. There were mourners present. Like, her, her life had ceased. Jesus is just reorienting their sight. Jesus is speaking into their situation with a new set of eyes. He's saying, you see things one way, but I'm telling you, that's not how they are. And so he steps into this situation. And just like he showed compassion to the woman, Jesus treats this situation with an incredible amount of compassion, a beautiful amount of compassion. He goes in, and it says in verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, something about this word Talitha that we need to sort of unpack here. It is a term, little girl. It means little girl. But the English doesn't quite capture the colloquialism. Colloquialism, that's a big word. What, what this probably, like, like more accurately, the tone of what Jesus is saying is, he's saying, sweetheart, get up. It's time to get up. Like he's speaking her with a tenderness and an affection. It's not like, hey, little girl, get out of bed. No, he's saying, sweetheart, come on. 
get up. There's a compassion here. There's a compassion towards this situation that Jesus brings to this. He's not indifferent. He he knows he is going to raise her from the dead. And he doesn't just walk in and go, okay, get up. No, he treats her with compassion. He shows love and compassion to this family. Jesus enters into this brokenness with an insane amount of compassion. That's the heart of Jesus. But there's also something else. The power Jesus puts on display. Like, look, sin is a massive problem. Suffering, pain, evil. Those are great enemies. Those are great threats. But death is far greater than all of them. Like, death is the final enemy. All of those things are in service of death. You may be able to escape suffering. You may be able to escape evil. But death... Once it has you, there's no turning back. But Jesus enters into the most powerful enemy. He confronts the most powerful enemy with such ease. It's like waking up a little girl from a nap. The most violent and destructive force on the planet, Jesus undoes as if he's waking someone up from a nap. That is power. That is power. That is how powerful our Lord is. Why trust Jesus? Why, Jairus, should you trust? Why do not fear, only believe? Because Jesus is compassionate and he's powerful. It's not white knuckle faith. It's trust in the compassion, in the power of Jesus. Even when we don't understand his timing, even when we don't understand why he does what he does, Even when we're confronted with the radical compassion of Jesus, that's also our hope because the compassion he has for others is the same compassion he has for you. The same power he exercises for others is the same power available to you. And so Jairus could look at Jesus healing that woman with the issue of blood and take hope because that same compassion and power Jesus was going to display for him. And so church, here's what is tough about this passage and also beautiful about this passage. Here's what this passage, where this passage leaves me sort of with a question mark. Like, I don't understand why Jesus did what he did. I don't understand why Jesus let this girl die. Now, we can say, look, hey, he showed his power, he resurrected her, it all worked out in the end. Yes, yes. But, but again, let's not move on too quickly. We don't always understand why Jesus does what he does. Like, more and more, as, as, a, as a pastor, but more as just a follower of Jesus, I, I'm more and more uneasy with my answers, with my can't answers of Why? Like, more and more, I'm learning that when I try to answer the question, why, it doesn't always fit. And sometimes I think I I try to answer that question just to create a sense of maybe control or to make sense of things because I don't like the tension and and the unease of not knowing why. And I think it's something that we have to come to grips with. Like, look, I don't know why. Certain things happen to people. I don't know why 
The state of Nebraska is underwater right now. I don't know why the suffering you're experiencing is happening right now. I don't know why Jesus hasn't answered your prayers. I don't know why the things are are going on the way that they do. And I don't even necessarily know what God is trying to tell you. Like someone asked me recently, kind of related to something that, that I'm facing right now, what do you think God is, is trying to show you or tell you? It's a great question. It's a great question. And it's one worth praying and wrestling through. But sometimes I don't know. I don't know. And so this passage doesn't tell us the why. But here's what it tells us. It tells us that Jesus is compassionate and he's powerful. That's our hope. Like that's where I'm going to hang my hope on. That's where I want to try to help you hang your hope on. We not, might not be able to answer all the whys, but what we can look to is that Jesus is compassionate and he's powerful. So it means no matter how bad things get, no matter how much suffering wrecks havoc in your life, no matter how destructive it seems, things get. None of those things are too great for Jesus to overcome. None of those things are too hard for him to step into and undo as if he's just waking someone up from a nap. And here's also our hope, is he's going to do it. Like he may not change your direct circumstances right now, but one day... He's going to wake us all up, all of us who are in Christ. He's going to raise us to new life. He's going to transform our bodies. He's going to put an end to all the sin and the suffering and the sickness and the evil and the conflict. This is our hope, church, because Jesus died, because Jesus went through death itself, because Jesus submitted himself and allowed himself to be killed and then rose victorious over death rose victorious over evil, rose victorious over sin. It's a passage Eric read this morning. He disarmed the rulers. He disarmed the authorities. All of that, Jesus has defeated. That's why it's so easy for him to overcome it. That's our hope, church. So, so I want to encourage us not to just go running after the wise. I want to encourage us not to get locked into this performance loop and put our hope in, if I just pray the right prayers and say the right things, Jesus will do all the things for me. No, I want us to anchor our hope in the compassion and power of Jesus, no matter his timetable. Because as this passage also shows us, Jesus may not operate on our timetable, but his timing is always perfect. His ways are always perfect. His power is always perfect. And I do know in one way or another, he wants to put that power on display for you. He wants to work that power in your life. He wants to, for you to experience his compassion, experience his grace, experience his love, experience his mercy. He wants to draw you near He wants to pull you in as a son and a daughter out of the shadows of shame and guilt and sin. And he wants us to be compassionate people as well. Like, look, if we're set free from our rigid timetables, if we're set free from our trying to control and order our world and sort of have our perfect little schedules, 
If we're set free from having to perform, if I only do this, then all these other good things will happen to me. If we're set free from all of that, you know what happens to us? We're compassionate people. We don't mind the mess of other people intruding into our world so we can share the love and grace of Jesus. We don't mind that we lose a little control because we know Jesus has called us into some beautiful things. And so church, I think he wants to set us free and for us to experience his love so that we can be compassionate people living under his good timetable and following his good agenda. So there's much in this text for us, church. There's much hope for us. There's much grace for us. And so let's run to the compassion of Jesus. Let's let's anchor our hope in his love for us. And let's let him transform us into a compassionate people that carry the gospel of this great Savior to our city and love and serve those who are broken, those who are full of shame, those who are hiding in the shadows that they may be brought into the light of Jesus. Amen.